God has established three institutions, and only three, the JCs and the Kiwanis and the Toastmasters, even the local booster club may be fine organizations, but none of them are divinely inspired. They're human inventions. There are only three God-ordained institutions in the world. In Genesis chapter 2, God established marriage and the family. In Acts chapter 2, He birthed the church. And in Genesis chapter 9, God originated human government. When Noah exited the ark, God gave basic principles to human beings by which they would govern themselves. You know, before the global flood of Noah's day, God saw enough anarchy and chaos an unbridled evil around the world, that he was convinced that man needed some form of self-rule to avoid another judgment. Thus, God instituted government. Our Lord Jesus also affirmed the role of human government. You remember in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus laid out mankind's dual responsibility. He said, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's. Our lives belong to God, but we also have an obligation to government. Now, 25 years later, it's obvious that this Rabbi Paul, he's still chewing on the ramifications of Jesus' statement. In fact, you'll notice his phraseology in verse 7 even sounds like Jesus. Romans chapter 13 is Paul's explanation of the Christian's duty to God and country. The chapter begins, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And here's the key word, notice it, the authorities that exist. You know, it's not just that government in general is God's idea, but the rulers that currently exist are the result of God's determination. You thought they were elected, I know. (laughs) But God is sovereign. He is behind the scenes pulling the strings. He is the one who ultimately sets up and brings down administrations. Though He disapproves of their evil, This means that God allows the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Saddams as well as the Bushes and the Obamas to rise to power. He has his reasons. God orchestrates the political stage for his own purposes. It's interesting, after the wicked Babylonian despot Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city of Jerusalem, and took God's people captive, the prophet Jeremiah still referred to him as, and I quote, God's servant. You see, God knows that human government is imperfect, but apparently even a flawed government is better than no government at all. We need to see the big picture. Both democracy and dictatorship is better than anarchy. Judges 21 verse 25 describes the darkest day in Israel's history. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Certainly the best form of government is a theocracy, where the one true God sits on the throne. The Bible predicts that the earth will one day be ruled by a theocracy. Jesus is going to return. He's going to rule over the nations of the world. But until then, any form of government is better than no government at all. Remember who was on the throne when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. Who was on the throne in Rome? Just down the street, mind you. When Paul wrote this letter, Caesar Caesar Nero was on the throne. And if you know anything about Nero, he was a certifiable nut job. That's what he was. You think, you think, you, you get disgusted with the politicians today. You can't imagine Caesar Nero. Nero set himself up as God. He killed his wife and son in order to consolidate his own power. He threw the Christians to the lions. He burned them at the stake to light his drunken orgies. Nero set fire to Rome to make room for his expansive building ambitions. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Caesar Nero was a madman. And yet notice, Paul is crystal clear he's going to be in this chapter. Despite the personality holding the office, he tells the church that they need to respect and obey the governing authority. He says in verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. If you resist the political structure in place, you're resisting the ordinance of God. This means that building code inspectors, oh, how I get frustrated with building code inspectors, and fire marshals, oh, they can seem tedious and bothersome and irrelevant, and yet they are God's instrument for civilization. As a matter of fact, just recently, I had a code enforcement official drive by my house and write me a ticket for parking a couple of my cars in the pine straw beside my house. I was livid. It's my pine straw. What do you mean I can't park on my pine straw? But you know what? I ended up complying. It's in the Bible. I have no choice. As long as a law is not immoral or unbiblical, even if it's stupid which that one was, I need to submit to the governing authorities. In those rare cases where the law of the land conflicts with the laws of God, the Bible teaches that we must obey God rather than man. But those situations are rare. Generally speaking, God uses human government to keep civilization civil. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And I remind myself of this whenever I'm cruising down the interstate. As I tell my kids, you've got nothing to worry about if you're driving a speed limit. You know, if you're driving a speed limit, it's terror-free driving. It's beautiful. Got nothing to worry about. He says, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. 
Generally speaking, legislators, policemen, they don't pick on good, law-abiding citizens. I mean, laws are written to restrain the bad guys, not hassle the good guys. Again, the flood in Noah's day proved that God is faithful to punish evil. But afterwards, the tool that God chose to help him with this task was human government. And notice here in verse 4, Paul even refers to the police officer as God's minister. The policeman, he's God's minister. Notice he bears the sword at God's discretion, or as we could say today, he packs the revolver at God's discretion. One day Jesus will return to earth to visibly rule the world and right all wrongs. But until then, God restrains evil and he punishes evildoers and he maintains an orderly society through the instrument, even though imperfect, of human government. Verse 5 tells us, Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. In other words, our motivation for observing the law shouldn't just be to avoid punishment. We should respect the God-given authority that the law represents. Whether the law we're talking about is a speed limit or a building code or a lame brain prohibition about parking your car on your pine straw. Sorry about that. Hey, if believers can't submit to authorities that we can see, How can we tell other people to submit to God's authority, an authority they can't see? I'm just saying, when a praise the Lord bumper sticker goes sailing down the freeway at 95 miles an hour, it is a sorry, sorry witness, let me tell you. Once there was a policeman, he was enforcing the dress code at this ritzy restaurant. A man walks in, he's wearing a nice jacket, but he has no necktie. And so the cop refuses to let him enter. Well, the rebellious patron, he stomps out of the restaurant. He goes back out to his car. He grabs his jumper cables out of the trunk, and he wraps them around his neck. And he comes back in, and he shouts at the policeman. He says, there, I'm wearing a necktie. The cop glares back at him, and he says, okay, buddy, but you better not start anything. Get it? Get it? Jumper cables, start anything. Well, hey, Paul is saying to us, just obeying the governing authorities. Just obey the governing authorities and you won't get into any trouble. You'll be fine. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Oh, we love taxes, don't we? For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Now notice, not only does Paul consider the policeman God's minister... But he says the same for the tax collector. Can you imagine? The IRS agent is God's minister. Hey, government was God's idea, and it's also his idea that it gets funded by us. Did you hear about the guy who walks into the IRS office? He sits down. The receptionist asks him, can I help you? He responds, no, I just wanted to see the people I've been working for for all these years. I hate paying taxes. You do too. But I do it because God has commanded me to do so. He's commanded me to pay the taxes that I owe. Paul says, render therefore. And here he sounds like Jesus. He uses the same phraseology as Jesus did in Matthew. He says, render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs 
to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Notice the two words Paul uses for taxes and customs. The word translated taxes refers to an annual tax, similar to our income tax or our real estate tax. The word custom refers to a tax on goods, more random tax, like a sales tax. Paul says, pay them both. But Pastor Sandy, what if the government spends our tax money foolishly or immorally even? Are we still supposed to pay our taxes? Well, the answer is yes. Hey, let me just ask you. Do you think for a moment the taxes Paul paid to Nero were used to open Christian schools and old folks' homes? You've got to be kidding. You're dreaming. Paul knew that at least a portion of Rome's tax base was spent on Nero's wild orgies and his pagan idolatry. Paul's taxes paid for circuses and carnivals, and yet he paid them anyway. And he even commanded the church to pay them as well. You know, I signed my 1040 form. I seal it in an envelope. I drop it in the mailbox, put anything that I owe in it. And from then on out, God holds the politicians responsible for how the money's been spent. I have done my duty. My God-given responsibility is to pay my taxes, and so is yours. You know, historians tell us that in the Roman Empire, the taxes were even more exorbitant than Americans pay today. And yet again, the Christians paid every single dime they owed. In fact, 2nd century church leader Tertullian, he said this. He said, what Romans lost by the Christians refusing to bestow gifts on their pagan temples, they gained by their conscientious payment of taxes. Government is ordained by God, and it's funded by us. Notice verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I've talked to Christians who see this as a blanket prohibition against all borrowing. And yet, notice the context of the verse. It's about paying, not avoiding debt. Our taxes are a debt that we are obligated to pay. And yet, here's what a lot of people will do. They'll make a huge deal out of the first half of this verse. Owe no one anything while they ignore the latter half of the verse except to love one another. Hey, pay what you owe, but remember your debt of love is never paid. If we love others the way God has loved us, we will be perpetual debtors, debtors to love. He said, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, here Paul lists the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. It's about how we treat our fellow man. God wanted the Hebrews to understand what love looked like to one another. But once Jesus put his love in our hearts, these written rules become obsolete. You see, real love won't lust after a neighbor's wife, or kill, or steal, or lie. It'll give rather than take. Thus, love 
is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You know, God intends for His church in the first century and in the 21st century to live in light of an overshadowing truth. Jesus is coming back. We should live every day in light of that truth. This is what Paul and his first century pals believed, and this is what we should believe today. You know, once there was a little boy, he heard the grandfather clock in the living room malfunction. It chimed 15 times. 15 times. He shouted, Mommy, Mommy, it's later than it's ever been before. And you know, that is certainly true. That's what we can say today. You know, we see the signs of the end times all around us. And we can go through them, a proliferation of natural disasters and the rebirth of Israel and the globalism that's taking place all around the world, unity in Europe, hostility toward Israel and the Jews. But you know, wherever we are on God's timeline, there's one certainty. It's later than it's ever been before. Time is running out on us for no other reason than we're all getting older. And one day we're going to die if, if Jesus tarries. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. If you're going to make a splash for Jesus, you better jump in now. Wait a little longer and you may wait too late. He says it's time now to awake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. I mean, when Jesus returns, do you want him to find you drunk? Of course not. When Jesus comes back, when the trumpet blows, do you want to be in bed with someone who's not your spouse? When Jesus appears, do you want to be on the phone stirring up some juicy gossip? Of course you don't. It's past time to get serious about living for Jesus. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. To put on Jesus, this is what we should be about. Every day, do you put on Jesus? Do you develop that new identity that He's given us in Christ? Do you put on that new mindset? Do you seek to be like Jesus in your thoughts, in your actions, in your attitudes? Do you put on Christ? Do you gear your life and your mind around spiritual pursuits, not sinful lusts? You see, here's the Christian life in a nutshell. It's all about casting off darkness and putting on Christ. Casting off darkness and putting on Christ. And it's a process. It takes place over time. We're casting off the works of darkness and we're putting on the mind of Christ. This is our daily occupation as Christians. Well, leading into chapter 14, there's an old saying that I'm fond of. I suppose it's a good southern expression. Here it goes. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? Think about it for a minute. In other words, there are some battles not worth fighting. 
And such was the case in the church at Rome. Believers were embroiled in battles, in conflicts, in arguments over non-essential supplemental issues. They were minoring on the majors while majoring on the minors. In other words, the church in Rome had lost focus on what really matters. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is going to address two types of Christians. Nail this down in your mind in advance. First, he's going to talk about the weaker brother. And this is the straight-laced, self-righteous chap. This is the fellow whose tendency is toward legalism. He believes in Jesus, but he takes pride in his discipline and in his abstinence. He thinks God's favor is tied to his conformity to outward rules and standards. Thus, in, thus he minds his religious manners. He never diverges too far from tradition. This is the guy who's into the rules. Whereas the stronger brother, he's the guy who's free from law and tradition. He knows he's right with God by faith and faith alone. In Christ, his compliance to custom is no longer required. He is strong in his faith in Jesus. And this has freed up his heart to follow the Lord. Weaker brother, stronger brother. It's ironic, but if you look at these two brothers, just from the outside, you know, a superficial glance, you might get them confused. One brother is more lax in comparison to the Spartan discipline of the other brother. The stronger brother might appear more lax. The weaker brother might appear more rigid, more stronger. But you see, from Paul's perspective, the brother trusting in God's grace is stronger in faith than the guy who's trying to build some religious resume that will secure God's favor. Here's Paul's point. Real strength is based on faith on how much we depend on Jesus, not how much we rely on our own fortitude. You see, you're stronger when you're trusting in Jesus than when you're trusting in your own works, in your own righteousness. It's reliance on Christ, not compliance to rules that makes us strong. See, it's easier for my pride to point out reasons God should love me than it is for me to admit that I'm a sinner and in need of God's grace. And here's what's sure to happen. The conformist, he'll see his nonconformist brother. And he'll wonder, why are you being so nonchalant? Why are you being so apathetic? Whereas the nonconformist, he'll accuse the weaker brother of legalism. Why are you trusting in your own righteousness? And you see, this was what was happening in the church at Rome. And Paul puts out this fire here in chapter 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, the city of Rome had a wholesale grocery called the Shambles. And there at the Shambles, you could purchase quality meat at a cut-rate price. And church members, Christians, they were shopping down at the Shambles. You see, the shambles, though, they got their meat from the pagan temples. Idolaters would make their sacrifices. And then the temple would sell the extras to turn a profit for the false prophets. Stronger believers, they weren't bothered by the tainted meat. I mean, to them, meat was just meat. 
Their standing with God was based on their faith they put in Jesus, not the food they put on their plate. In other words, the libertarians, the stronger brothers, they felt free to cook out. Let's grill a steak. They didn't care where it came from. But the weaker brothers, those who trusted in the do's and don'ts, they were appalled at the thought of eating desecrated meat. To them, this was guilt by association. To them, eating meat was equal to participating in the idolatry themselves, itself. And so to these vegetarians, the ground round was out of bounds. Now, obviously, most of us would never agonize over the spiritual implications of what we purchased at the meat market. I doubt it. This seems like an irrelevant issue to us. But understand, how we handle these non-essential elements of church life become terribly, terribly important. In fact, usually Christians divide and fellowships fracture, not over the major issues. Oh no, they split over minor concerns. We all tend to agree on the essentials of our faith. It's the non-essentials where we polarize, where we get picky and, and where we get petty with each other. Our judgmental spirit spoils our sweetness, the sweetness of our fellowship and our unity. And so as Paul puts it in verse 1, we tend to get distracted in disputes over doubtful things. Verse 3, So let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant to his own master he stands or falls. In other words, I'm not your Lord and you're not my Lord. When it comes to these non-essential ideas, elements, we answer to Jesus, not each other. You see, we're all at different stages in our spiritual maturity. There may be healthy reasons why the weaker brother holds to the convictions that he holds to. That why he's not free to, to lay these things aside. For example, a person may be an alcoholic. He may never be free to drink. The guy who shouldn't might look down his nose to the guy who can't. And the guy who can't shouldn't feel superior to the guy who can. You see, when it comes to these, these non-essential elements, each one of us are at a different place. And Jesus has laid convictions on our own heart. We, we shouldn't doubt your convictions. You shouldn't doubt my convictions. I love the tail end of verse 4. He says, indeed, he will, be able, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. I like that. God is able to make him stand. When I was 22 years old, I started Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. And I sported a grungy beard. I wore a pair of flip-flops on Sunday morning, and I had this black shirt with pink flamingos on it. Kathy hated it, but I loved it. And I'm sure folks would visit our church on some of those Sundays, and they would take one look at me, and they would figure that, man, this guy will never make it. And of course, the verdict's still out. But so far, God has made me stand. And you know, I've learned a big lesson. Never judge a guy based on the non-essentials. If God is in his corner, no matter how different he might be from you, God can make him stand. 
Jesus is my Lord, not you. Jesus is your Lord, not me. And he'll make us stand if our hearts are right toward him. Verse 5, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. See, it wasn't just about diet, but days also troubled the Romans. Do we worship on Saturday or do we worship on Sunday? The Hebrew day of rest or do we worship, you know, on the, the, the day, uh, the resurrection, the first day of the week, the day the resurrection took place? Do we keep the Old Testament feasts or have they now become obsolete? These were the questions they were asking. And Paul again is saying when it comes to these non-essentials, there's no right or wrong. There's no black or white. These are gray matters. And so they boil down to personal preference. As Paul writes, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Here's a list of gray matters that we might deal with today. A glass of wine at dinner? A beer after I mow the lawn? Is this allowable? Can a Christian chew tobacco or smoke a cigar? Can a godly woman wear a two-piece swimsuit? Can a man grow his hair long or sport an earring and still be pleasing to God? What about tattoos? That's a big question. Gray matters also appear in family life. Is it more spiritual for a young mother to breastfeed or bottle feed? How should a Christian educate his kids? Homeschool, Christian school, public school? What does God prefer? Is it right or wrong to put your elderly parents in a nursing home or does God want you to bring them home to live out their days with you? And what about Santa Claus? Do you have Santa Claus or not have Santa Claus? Again, these are all gray matters. It boils down to what seems right to you, how the Holy Spirit leads you in your circumstances and in your situation. Worship styles, church etiquette, these are also subjects of varying shades of gray. Is it pleasing to God to play rock and roll music in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings? Can a person wear shorts to church? Should communion be taken weekly or quarterly? Can you use face cards and play spades on the church retreat? All these issues become gray matters. And gray matters even appear in doctrine. When we baptize, do we baptize by immersion or do we baptize by sprinkling? Will the rapture occur before or after the great tribulation? You know, good Christians, they line up on both sides. And of course, the granddaddy of all church splitters is a believer really once saved, always saved. Again, these are all gray matters. And yet to some people, these gray matters really matter. Now, Paul tells us how peace is found in the church. Peace is found in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Rather than me telling you what to do or you telling me what to do, it's up to each of us to report to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will lead each of us in our own way and at our own pace. If an issue is squarely addressed in Scripture, then our position's clear. We need to stick to the script. I mean, black and white is easy. But in a gray matter, we need to leave some latitude. Don't be so dogmatic. Leave your brother room to grow, even room to disagree. Notice verse 6. He says, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. 
And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. Notice this. Two people can be on the opposite ends of a gray issue and both still be pleasing to the Lord. That's what I hope you can wrap your mind around. In other words, God looks at the heart. One man, he eats meat to the glory of God. Another man abstains to the glory of God. What matters to God is that we're both seeking his glory. He says, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We'll all answer to the Lord, not each other. He says, for to this end, God, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Notice this. Jesus paid the ultimate price to be Lord of his church. So let him. Let him be Lord. Jesus died and rose and lives again. Beware lest you try to usurp his place by judging another member of the body of Christ. I mean, do you really want to take over as Lord? I think somebody else already has that job. You know, my fourth born, he was a late walker. Now he's doing fine now. Plays college baseball. Doing pretty good. He's got that walking thing down. But the reason the kid crawled for so long was that he lived in a house with three other siblings. He didn't have room to try to get up and walk without getting knocked down. This is what keeps a lot of new babes in Christ from learning to walk. We don't give them room enough to grow. They don't feel the freedom to make a mistake. They're afraid that if they mess up, they'll get knocked down. So what do they do? They just keep crawling. They're always crawling. They never get up and try to walk and serve the Lord for themselves. You see, real spiritual growth involves some risk. It's easier just to sit back and be told what to do than it is to step out and really learn to follow Jesus for yourself. This is why we need to give each other room to grow. Verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Everyone is accountable to God. Believers will be judged differently than unbelievers, certainly, but Jesus will judge us all. We'll all stand before him. This is why it's foolish for us to judge each other. Remember the motto. It's, uh, it's, it's been around for thousand, thousands of years, but it's still so true. Remember the motto. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. He says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. A man, he's on the phone. We're allowed to hear one side of the conversation. He says, yes, Gladys is a difficult woman. 
I know I ought to be more firm with her, but, but it's hard. You, you know how she is. Yes, I, I remember you warned me. Yeah, I know. You told me that she was a hard woman and she would make my life miserable. I know. I know you begged me not to marry her. I remember. You were right. Oh, you want to talk to her? Okay. And then he calls into the other room. Gladys, your mother wants to talk to you. <laughs> Poor Gladys. You know, it's one thing to be thrown under the bus by your mother-in-law, but to be zinged by your own mom? And I mean, the same is true with the body of Christ. We expect the world to try to destroy us. We expect the world to drag us down, cause us to stumble. But when the stumbling block comes from our own family, it's terrible. And Paul here warns us not to participate in an activity that's going to tempt or mislead another brother or sister in Christ. We don't want to stumble each other. Notice verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Take rock music, for example. What's the difference between a C note played on a grand piano and a C played on an electric guitar? Obviously, there's no difference. You see, what makes any music form good or evil is the message it communicates and the spirit in which it's played. Well, see, Paul is convinced that nothing in the world is intrinsically evil. Whether it becomes good or bad is determined by how it's used. How it's used is what makes a thing moral or immoral. In other words, all things are pure to the person with a pure heart. One man can use an object to the glory of God. Another man can take that same object and get ensnared in sin. The problem is not the object. The problem is the heart of the man. He says, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Oh my. One thing becomes sinful when it causes me to get distracted and fumble away my faith. That's when something becomes sinful. Or when it causes my brother to stumble in his faith. What makes a thing simple? If it causes me to fumble away my faith or if it causes my brother to stumble in his faith. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. He says, All food is good, but it can turn bad if you, if you use it badly. If you use it to trip others up and send them sprawling. When you sit down to a meal, your primary concern should not be to feed your own face, but to share the life of Jesus. I love this. Don't you dare let a piece of God-blessed food become an occasion of soul poisoning. Once there was a TV repairman, he hated bringing his work home. So as a result, he never properly installed the antenna on top of his house. Even when the storm blew through, the antenna broke off, and yet he failed to make the needed repairs. Well, when the new neighbor moved in next door, he knew he was living next to a TV repairman. So he, he looked up and he installed his antenna 
exactly like his lazy neighbor had installed his. After careful study, he even broke off a piece of the arm so that his antenna would be like the the professional next door. Foiled by a faulty example. You know, it just goes to prove that we're all an example whether we like it or not. We're all an example whether we know it or not. And the same is true in God's family. A weaker brother sees you exercise a liberty and follows your example, but he ends up falling into bondage. His faith gets sabotaged by your liberty. You see, instead of being a brother, you've become a stumbling block. In fact, you become a blockhead. That's what you've become. I mean, was exercising your freedom really worth it? There was once a man who always had a bottle of wine with his Thanksgiving dinner. One Thanksgiving, he, he found himself bone dry, so he bundled up in his warm jacket and he headed out in the snow to walk down to the corner liquor store. As he was walking down the street, he heard someone following him. He turned around and it was his little boy. And it stunned him where he was leading his son. He turned around and he headed back home. You know, I've heard it said, the shepherd paces the flock to accommodate the weakest lamb. Oh yes, the weaker brother needs to grow in his faith. He needs to mature. He needs to understand that there are liberties in the Christian life. But the stronger brother, he needs to grow in love. And he needs to understand that his actions can cause a younger brother to stumble. Let's remember, we can destroy with our food a brother from whom Christ died. That's heavy. See, if you're truly free, it's just as easy for you to restrain as it is for you to indulge. Well, notice verse 16. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now now notice this. The Romans, they were upset over diet and days. But meat and drink are of very little consequence in God's scheme of things. What's important to God? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What matters in the kingdom of God are the matters of the heart. Phil Taylor, he grew up in a white church in the deep south during the 1960s. I can identify. And he writes about his experience in that church. He says, I don't know how we missed it. While King marched on Selma and an entire race cried out for justice, I heard sermons against rock and roll, the Beatles, miniskirts, and long hair. But I never heard them mention racism, injustice, intolerance, hatred, and bigotry. Those are the things that God hates. You know, I can remember the exact same thing in the church I grew up in. I mean, we majored on the minors, and we ignored the majors. Churches have a penchant for missing the forest for the trees. We fail to see the obvious. Oh, God, please open our eyes. Well, notice verse 18. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. In other words, you've confused your priorities 
if you hurt a brother just to flaunt your freedom or just to make a statement. And our priority should always be the building up and the encouraging of one another. Hey, loving a brother should always be more important to you than proving a point. I haven't always understood that, I have to admit. Uh, for a long time, I was so eager to prove my point, to make my statement. What's more important, far more important, is loving one another. Verse 20. You know, you can, I'll, I'll just add one more thought. You can sometimes be so right that you become wrong. Verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. I mean, God's mission in the world is to save souls, to mature believers, not indulge callous Christians who care more about making a point than helping folks grow. Don't forget, our fellowship is just as precious, perhaps more so, than our freedom. You know, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he used to smoke cigars. And for a time, he was quite proud of the fact. In fact, once Spurgeon was questioned about his smoking, he replied, well, I never smoke in excess. When someone asked him what he meant by excess, he answered, never more than two at a time. Spurgeon felt the liberty to light up a stogie until one day he saw a billboard advertisement which read, smoke the brand that Spurgeon smokes. From that day on, we're told that he laid them down and he never smoked another cigar. At least that's the story. He didn't want a believer to become addicted to a vice because of his example. And that's the attitude that we should emulate. Verse 20. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Again, two rules apply to our participation in any activity. First, does it cause me to fumble away my faith? If I can't do it in faith, if I can't do it to the glory of God, I'm not free to participate. And then second, does it cause my brother to stumble? If it causes me to fumble or someone else to stumble, then I just don't need to go there. And that's where we'll stop tonight, chapter 14.